Hello, this is Pod Academy. What's the real cost of IVF, in vitro fertilisation? As Louise Brown, the world's first tube baby, celebrates her 40th birthday, this seminar, organised by the Progress Educational Trust, explores not just the economic cost, but also the emotional and psychological costs of IVF. Welcome to the real cost of IVF. I'm Sarah Norcross and I'm the director of Progress Educational Trust. Progress Educational Trust, PET, is a charity that was founded in 1992 to advance public understanding of the science, law and ethics surrounding assisted reproduction, genetics and stem cell and embryo research. PET aims to improve the choices for people who are affected by infertility and or genetic conditions. And we do this by promoting the responsible application of science and engaging with the public, by leading the debate, by influencing policy, and by informing and explaining. And this event ticks all the boxes for that. And we also publish Bionews, which is a great way of keeping up to date with what's going on in this sector. So... PET is extremely grateful for tonight's sponsors, the British Fertility Society, for the vision to fund this discussion, and it is a really timely one. The real cost of IVF is a sort of ambiguous title. It covers an awful lot of different topics. But the real cost of IVF was really brought home to us in the PET office yesterday when someone who is planning to attend this meeting emailed to say that unfortunately she wouldn't be coming because she'd just found out that her third cycle of treatment had failed and she, she didn't feel up to coming to London. And that took us aback in the office you know, and brought it home even more that this is a serious issue that affects people. Tonight's chair is Sally Cheshire. Sally is the chair of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, the regulator for fertility treatment in the UK. Now, Sally, I'm sure she won't mind me saying was a fertility patient herself. And she brings great empathy for patients with her to her role in the sector, as well as her great professional expertise. And I'll hand over now to Sally. Thank you very much, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here tonight. Um, as Sarah mentioned, I was a patient, and the topic here is very close to my heart, we hear a lot in the media, don't we, about the financial cost of IVF, about whether fertility treatment um, of any description, including IVF, should be provided on the NHS. And that um, horror of horrors comment, you know, maybe infertility is a lifestyle choice and we shouldn't be funding it. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot tonight about access and about funding, but we're also going to talk about other costs, about the emotional and psychological cost of having fertility treatment and about the opportunity costs if we don't provide that treatment to the number of people who need it, economic benefits for society, potentially. As chair of the regulator, I don't always have the magic wand to wave to change the levers around funding, and I've said that in many um, public arena before. But what we are concerned about at the HFEA is that as many patients as possible and all those that we support have fair access that they receive consistently high-quality standards when they're treated, 
that they benefit from evidence-based medicine, not quirks or gimmicks, and we will return to add-on treatments, I know. But most importantly, that at every stage of their journey, they benefit from the right level of emotional support to try and help people through something which is heartbreaking and life-changing. So we have an expert and a very um, experienced panel tonight. So, um, first of all, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Leslie Regan, who is the president of the RCOG here. Um, I don't know if this is the first time you've spoken at one of these events, Leslie, but it's nice to be on home territory. Leslie is also the deputy head of surgery and cancer at Imperial College and also the head of Obzangaini at St. Mary's Hospital. Over to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here and to be able to welcome you here. I'd like to start by sharing just a few personal details about myself that I think are relevant to the topic of this talk. One of the key areas of focus over my career has been um, supporting couples who experience recurrent miscarriage. And I try to continue this work one day a week uh, whilst I'm doing my role as president of the RCOG. So it's actually quite a long time since I worked in an assisted conception service. Ginny Bolton might remember some of the things I did uh, up in Cambridge when I was working with her and Peter Brodie. But every week, I see women and their partners who are considering IVF to help them achieve their goal uh, to become parents, or who have very unfortunately experienced several unsuccessful cycles. So I've got huge sympathy, and I think quite a lot of experience of talking to these couples who are struggling, who are unable to conceive naturally, and I think I do have a bit of an understanding about the distress and sadness this causes. But my personal life is also relevant to the theme of my talk because, as some of you know, I'm the mother of twin daughters, conceived naturally rather than IVF, but I do have some first-hand experience of a multiple pregnancy that got complicated. And I had a premature delivery at 33 weeks, so I have some first-hand experience of what it feels like to be a parent with two tiny babies on life support machines. Now, I'm very lucky, because some of you in the audience looking at the faces have met my daughters who tower above me now are 25 years old and busy telling me what to do. But I will never forget those first four weeks that the three of us spent in neonatal intensive care at St Mary's over the Christmas and New Year of 1992. And quite simply, it was the most humbling experience of my life. So I'm going to draw on some personal and some professional things, and I'm just going to start by reminding you that much of what we're Going to, I'm going to say anyway, very briefly in summary, is taken from the recent scientific impact paper published by the RCOG in February this year, uh, entitled Multiple Pregnancies Following Insisted Conception. Some of, the, some of the contributors are here in the room, I can see their faces, um, and it's freely available on the RCOG website, and I really strongly encourage you all to read it in full if you've got the chance. So, of course, many women are very thrilled to find out they're pregnant with twins or triplets after fertility treatment. I speak to some who particularly feel um, that this is going to be their only chance of becoming a parent and have also always wanted more than a ch one child. And this possibly would include older women, women who have very low chance of successful IVF uh, due to their own or their partner's particular medical problems. And, of course, given the well-documented issues with NHS funding of fertility treatment, which I'll come back to, women and couples who can only afford to fund one cycle of IVF. But there are clear 
or there is cl very clear evidence of significant maternal, fetal, and neonatal risk associated with multiple pregnancy. And I think clinicians all have a moral obligation to share with women and couples at an appropriate stage in this IVF journey those risks. Now, I don't want to alarm anyone in the audience who's currently pregnant with twins or even triplets, because um, I'm going to assure you that we have excellent care available on the NHS. But there will be some of you in the audience who've been lucky enough to have very successful pregnancies. And I don't want to negate those positive experiences either. So my focus is on population level risk and data and how women, couples and clinicians need to work together to consider how this data relates to individual circumstances. So looking at the potential complications for mothers, there's a wealth of evidence to show that multiple pregnancy is linked to a significant increase in risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational diabetes, peripartum hemorrhage, operative delivery, uh, postnatal depression and anxiety, I'm going to come back to that, and parenting stress. And all of these have an undoubted cost in terms of the physical and emotional impact on that woman. So experiencing or even knowing about these potential risks, of course, causes stress and anxiety during the pregnancy and the birth itself. And, of course, these complications have cost implications for the NHS, um, not just the obstetric costs. For example, we're always being told by our managers that a cesarean section costs much more than a vaginal birth. I would argue there are some contra-arguments to that. Um, but, of course, one of the overlooked issues, I think, too, is the enormous bill that the NHS spends, about $8 billion a year, um, on, on mental health, um, perinatal mental health. And this figure, I know, relates to all births, not only multiple births, but the figure is truly astounding. And anything we can to reduce to, uh, do to reduce that burden, I think, is, um, we should be welcomed, not just for costing, but as the burden on women, families, um, and, and their society in general. So in addition to the increased risk of complications for the woman, multiple pregnancies also associated with a six-fold increase in the risk of preterm birth. I told you about mine. I was trying to behave very well when I was pregnant. I was called an elderly primate, but the definitions have changed now. Um, but preterm birth is a leading cause of infant mortality and long-term mental and physical disabilities, including cerebral palsy, learning difficulties, and chronic lung disease. So even if your baby ultimately suffers no ill consequences, the experience of having a preterm baby can be immensely uh, stressful and distressing for parents. And, of course, all of these have an enormous impact on the well-being of mothers, um, parents, and families. So there is also the cost to the health system itself. According to one study, the estimated cost of neonatal care in the NHS is 16 times higher for a twin than for a singleton baby. So the impact of multiple pregnancy on both individuals and on the wider healthcare economy, coupled with medical and technological advances, led the HFEA uh, to develop a policy to reduce the multiple birth rate in the UK. And I applaud them for everything they did. When I sat on the HFEA some years ago now, it was just coming in. And it's amazing uh, the improvement that you've managed to achieve. Um, so the policy was launched in 2009 after consultation with IVF clinics and professional bodies, patient groups and NHS commissioners with the initial maximum multiple birth rate set at 24% of all live births over the next four years. This was reduced down to 10%. That's an amazing figure or reduction. And to facilitate this, all IVF clinics were asked to develop a multiple birth minimization strategy uh, supported by a series of workshops run by HFEA to allow clinics to share their experiences and their best practice. 
So the model was effectively one of a clear regulatory framework that also allowed clinics and clinicians the autonomy to decide which of their patients could benefit from elective single embryo transfer and those for whom transferring more than one embryo would be most appropriate. And these are the data in the SIP, the scientific impact paper showing trends of ESET uh, pregnancy and multiple pregnancy rates between 2008 and 2014. So you can look at the data or the small, small figures um, at a later point. But in the UK, this has led to a significant progress in increasing the elective single embryo transfer rate. I won't give you the figures because they're all in the impact paper, but they really have reduced dramatically. So, but there's more we can do, I think, to ensure we continue to see an increase in the success rate of IVF while minimising the impact on women, couples and the NHS of multiple pregnancies. We know from countries such as Sweden and Belgium that it's possible to reduce the multiple birth rate to single figures without an impact on the overall pregnancy rate. And I think this is a key point, trying to persuade couples and clinicians and clinics to recognize uh, that you can get extremely good cumulative pregnancy rates using single embryo transfer. So here are the cumulative live birth rates and if you look at the scientific impact paper you can see their provenance there. This is in stark contrast, I think, to the published literature, which has clearly demonstrated that in women with a good prognosis, the cumulative live birth rate after elective single embryo transfer, followed by the transfer of a thawed embryo in a subsequent frozen embryo transfer cycle, is comparable uh, to that of double embryo transfer, but with a lower risk of multiple pregnancy and its potential complications. So if you'll permit me one last anecdote, a colleague of mine is currently having IVF treatment at a very reputable London institution and had a double embryo transfer on the advice of her clinical team. However, at no point in her visits to the clinic did anyone share and discuss with her the potential risks of a multiple pregnancy, and I think that's really quite unusual. So I'm just going to finish by saying uh, improving awareness of everything that I've talked about and I'm sure the other speakers are going to talk about is obviously one part of the picture. Um, we know that international experience is clear that the single most important factor that could enhance the acceptance of uh, elective single embryo transfer in patients and practitioners is the provision of appropriate funding for IVF treatment. And in those countries in Europe that have done it, they have fantastic cumulative pregnancy rates. So this is some of the media coverage we had on publication of our SIP um, which speaks for itself. Um, and I hope that you will allow the RCAG, BFS and HFEA to continue to collaborate to try and push for the, well, push the political framework, if you like, uh, and the policymakers to uphold uh, appropriate funding, which is actually going to change the picture. Thank you. Thank you very much, Leslie. Um, our next speaker is um, Professor Jackie Boyvin, who is Professor of Health Psychology and a Chartered Health Psychologist at Cardiff University's School of Psychology. She's also the Councillor Representative um, at the British Fertility Society. Jackie. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come and talk to you today on uh, this topic. Uh, I'm sure that uh, all of you will recognize that uh, the wish for a, a child is strong in, in women and men, and it's global. Um, and so to consider what the cost may be of not being able to have children uh, should be at the forefront of all kinds of decision-making, including decision-making uh, about funding. Now, uh, the one thing that we need to do when we 
have those kinds of considerations uh, in terms of IVF is to consider, well, what are the emotional costs of IVF versus the cost of being an untreated infertile person? Because these two things are difficult to disentangle because the people who do IVF tend to be people who have fertility problems. Now, the costs or the, the emotional effects of childlessness itself are profound, uh, and they're due primarily to the unfulfilled child wish. Uh, but of course, there's also uh, costs associated to the physical aspects of underlying conditions. So, for example, if you have PCOS, you may have uh, hirsutism or acne, which may be stigmatizing to you. If you have endometriosis, you may have severe pelvic pain. You may have dyspareunia that cause relationship problems or occupational problems that are cause stressors and so on. Uh, and, of course, there are some emotionally demanding aspects to fertility treatment that are actually emotionally demanding aspects of life in general uh, if you're trying to conceive and you're not successful. So, for example, waiting for pregnancy tests during fertility treatment or waiting for pregnancy test result when you're trying uh, to conceive naturally or spontaneously. Uh, and, of course, the biggest stressor for most people is discovering that you're indeed not pregnant on that attempt to conceive. So really, when we want to know what the costs, the emotional costs of IVF are, we need to compare the costs uh, to untreated groups so that also have infertility or to the same woman across uh, a cycle with treatment versus a cycle without treatment. So these are uh, somewhat old data uh, from a published paper in 1996 that we did, but I think they remain the same. Uh, so what we have here is, this is the comparison of this person's emotional reactions during IVF versus an untreated uh, menstrual cycle. And what you can immediately see here is that, yes, indeed, doing IVF is more, uh, causes more stress, but you can see that the main thing is more physical discomfort due to ovarian <laughs> stimulation, oocyte pickup, and so on. And the biggest psychological reaction is actually that doing IVF gives people a lot of hope. And it gives them hope that they will be able to achieve their goal of parenthood. Now, this is one reason that people uh, think that people in fertility treatment often report higher quality of life during treatment than people who are outside of treatment. Uh, and that this is because when they're doing treatment, they feel like they're doing something and therefore uh, they have a chance to resolve their fertility problems. Now, the question of optimism is often used against doctors, that doctors declare uh, very high success rates that aren't justified by the success rates of their clinics. And to some extent, that is true. Uh, so in this uh, in these set of data, uh, which are de Dutch data, uh, the patients were asked, what did your doctor tell you was your chance of success? And so in this case the doctor said 10%, and here 25%, and here 50%, and here 70%. And you can see that probably success rates of 50 and 70% at the start of an IVF uh, cycle are probably optimistic estimates. But what you see is that the patients who were given the 10% estimate could themselves believe that their success rates were anywhere between 80%. So we said, what did your doctor tell you? And then the next question was, what do you believe? 
And these, the, each bar represents uh, mul multiple uh, patients, but many patients thought 80%, many thought 60%, many thought 50%. So people who enter treatment are generally tend to be optimistic about the success rates, regardless of what the doctors tell them. And that is, to some extent, a psychological uh, uh, te technique, if you will, or um, 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 an approach that we take because, of course, in order for you to go through this treatment that you've invested a lot of money and so on, you need to be optimistic that you have a chance of achieving pregnancy. The interesting thing is that your optimism is even higher when you uh, have to pay for your fertility treatment. So, in other words, uh, the, the payment justifies, causes people to be even more uh, optimistic. And that's probably because when it's free and you know there are multiple cycles available to you, you can confront the reality that perhaps you're not going to be pregnant on the first cycle. So the question then is not so much about whether optimism or people feeling optimistic is a bad thing, but it's more a question of, well, what happens to people when that uh, optimism is uh, thwarted, when they don't become pregnant? And so again, you have to look to registry studies that, that compare people who have done IVF versus people who haven't and what their outcomes are, because of course it could be IVF, but it could also be the underlying infertile state. And so here I just give three examples. You probably won't see these tiny bits of data, but I've kind of summarized here. And what the, these large registry studies of 40, 50,000 people, and hopefully one day we'll be able to do UK studies like this, is that what you find is that it is not so much the having been in treatment that is a problem, but it is having not achieved your goal of parenthood. So the rates of suicide are higher if you remain childless after uh, uh, fertility treatment and your rate of marital breakdowns are higher. Your chance of depression is actually slightly reduced, but when we dig into those data a little bit more, what we find is actually for mental health problems, again, it's the depression and mental health problems are greater and you're most at risk when you have a persistent child wish. So you underwent fertility treatment, and this is a sample of 7,000 uh, women, when you've undergone the fertility treatment and you end up being childless and still have an unfulfilled child wish, okay? So that means that if you've not had the opportunity to resolve your fertility, hopefully through things like access to fertility treatment, when you've not had that opportunity, then your long-term outcomes 10 years later are poorer because you have a persistent wish uh, to resolve the, the fertility. So the conclusion is that there's a strong wish for children. It's a near universal thing. Uh, and being infertile has costs that we have to distinguish from the costs that are associated with the treatment itself. IVF offers people hope of achieving their goal of parenthood, and people take that on board when they start their fertility treatment, regardless, really, of what the doctors say. Uh, and optimism is stronger when people make a greater financial uh, contribution. Uh, but the psychological costs of being childless could be overcome with IVF because it's the childlessness itself that causes long-term psychological damage more so than the cost of doing the IVF uh, itself. Thank you.
Thanks very much, Jackie. As I said, we'll take questions at the end. So our third speaker is Dr. Rebecca Brown, um, known as Becky, who is a research fellow at Oxford University's Yuhiro Centre for Practical Ethics. She's a member of the research project Individual Responsibility in Healthcare and the author of research into the relationship between fertility, policy and ethics. Um, thanks so much, Sarah, for inviting me to talk tonight. Um, I should warn everyone that I'm a philosopher and a public health ethicist, so I come at this from a slightly different perspective from maybe some of the other speakers tonight. I'm interested in what states' general obligations are with regards to citizens. So I look at public health um, in a number of different contexts, not specifically infertility. So that's my, my approach to this, is infertility or subfertility, as I should refer to it, um, in the context of lots of other obligations that states have. And um, I have no slides, like a classic philosopher, and I've also done what any sensible philosopher would do and interpret the question to be something that I want to talk about as opposed to something I don't know a huge amount about. So, um, so really what I'm interested in, in trying to highlight this evening is something about the way that the um, provision of IVF and fertility treatment encourages us to see subfertility um, and also how the way that subfertility has been uh, thought of and categorized has encouraged us to focus on IVF as the solution to it. So um, my colleague in Aberdeen where I used to work, Professor Siladitya Bhattacharya, who um, works in this area as a reproductive health specialist, used to talk about subfertility as a prognosis, not a diagnosis. And I'm sure that's familiar to many people in the room, but it kind of highlights just how tricky it is to understand in terms of health and disease just exactly what subfertility is. So um, it doesn't fit kind of neatly into this health framing. Uh, subfertility affects people who appear to be perfectly healthy and um, for whatever reason can't conceive. There's also individuals who are completely sterile, but they suffer from it not a bit because they don't want to have children. There's also the case of um, same-sex couples or single individuals who can't have children despite being in good biomedical health. Um, for obvious reasons, they can't conceive, and if they really want to conceive, then that's a terrible problem for them. So this creates problems for um, understanding how we should respond to subfertility in terms of the paradigm of um, biomedical disease, which is what we're used to operating with in the context of uh, the NHS and healthcare in the UK context, at least. So we have finite resources, and we have to decide how to ration healthcare in some way, um, both between different kinds of disease and within, within any single disease between different individuals. In trying to ensure that people with subfertility receive a fair slice of um, the healthcare funding available at the healthcare funding at the NHS's disposal, Lobbyists have um, fought hard to have subfertility recognized as a disease, and in doing so, they've emphasized the biomedical aspects of subfertility. And this is completely understandable. As I think has already been mentioned, there's often this accusation uh, leveled at people who um, complain that not enough funding is provided for subfertility, that, oh, it's just a lifestyle choice. 
Um, it's like not having the kind of job or home or partner that you want. It's not something that the state should get involved, involved with. Um, and the response to this, I think, understandably, has been to emphasize just how severe the suffering of people with subfertility is and how it is a disease and how we must recognize it as such. But I think that there is a cost that comes with this line of response. It's hard to find space within that paradigm of biomedical disease for people who don't fit neatly within it. So um, for individuals who don't have clear biomedical indicators of disease or for same-sex couples or single individuals who might suffer terribly from, from um, their inability to conceive and have a child. Um, so this obviously uh, results in great costs to a number of people. I'm sort of crowbarring in the title of the, the evening's event. Um, and so uh, I think we need to address this. And one, one option that we have is rather than kind of distancing the discussion about subfertility from these other kinds of problems that people have, but in order to, um, to, to fully recognize just what is wrong with subfertility, why we must address it, I think recognizing the suffering that accompanies the sorts of problems that people experience when they're unemployed, when they're homeless, when they're lonely, um, I don't think these are merely lifestyle problems. I think these are all very serious things that the state has an obligation to address and seek to support people to get through. So the emphasis of the state's obligation to support people with subfertility shouldn't be that they have a disease. It should be that they suffer terribly. And I think that this applies to a lot more things than diseases. This also, I think, if we take um, the discussion outside of the medical domain in, in the way that I'm suggesting, it enables us to see alternative ways of responding. So if subfertility is a disease and we focus closely on that, then it makes sense that the solution would be a medical one. And that means IVF, it means hormone injections, it means trips to clinics, it means that it's medical doctors who will be um, treating people. But if we step back slightly and take um, a preventative approach to this as well as a, a clinical approach then we can see that there might be some other opportunities to reduce the suffering of people now for those for whom IVF is effective then it's absolutely justifiable to provide it as a treatment um, and I don't want to um, fail to acknowledge the, the importance and the help that IVF can be for some individuals but for those for whom it's not a useful solution um, there might be other ways of supporting them which appear to be uh, undesirable uh, so long as we have IVF as the gold standard for treatment. So these are approaches which use counselling and support um, and other opportunities to engage with child-rearing relationships, particularly in developing countries, in low-income countries. It might be to do with addressing the stigma that attaches to women who are childless. Um, not only stigma, actually, but financial hardship that can attach in those contexts. So there are other ways of trying to alleviate suffering in the context of subfertility. And I think um, sometimes it's useful to open the discussion up slightly from this medical context and, and consider what other options there might be available to us. It's under time. <laughs> Thanks very much, Becky. We've um, got some very different perspectives tonight, haven't we? But I think they all um, certainly should provoke questions. 
Um, our final speaker is Jessica Hepburn. I'm very pleased to welcome Jessica. She um, was also a fertility patient. Um, she is the author of two books, The Pursuit of Motherhood and the upcoming 21 Miles, Swimming in Search of the Meaning of Motherhood. She's also the founder and director of Fertility Fest, which takes place in May. Welcome, Jessica. I hope you haven't started my time yet. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what to say today about the real cost of IVF. I had 11 rounds of IVF and they cost me between £5,000 and £15,000 each. The £15,000 was my last round at the height of my add-on frenzy. So I'm not sure that I know what the real cost of IVF is, but I do know that I spent £70,000 in total, and that wasn't money I had. It involved remortgaging our house, bank loans, borrowing from our family, and a lot of credit card debt. Then I wondered whether I should be talking about the real cost of IVF to the National Health Service. It seems crazy to me on so many levels that the CCGs are cutting their IVF provision. There's a reason why NICE recommends three rounds of treatment. That's because IVF works. That's clinically proven. But it rarely works first time. Putting aside for a moment the financial cost of treating the mental health aspects of these cuts, we know that one of the direct results is people are having to go privately, both in the UK and increasingly they're going abroad. This is surely one of the main reasons we are still seeing high numbers of multiple births, although I admit that they are coming down in this country. The costs of caring for premature babies born as a result of IVF in the private healthcare system and treating health complications for the mothers is huge. And surely that's just bad economics. And then, of course, there's the emotional cost of IVF. Infertility has a soul-destroying effect on your relationship with family, friends, colleagues, your partner. It decimates your self-esteem and grips you in a fear for your future. I know society finds it difficult to understand the enormity of this pain. And that's maybe why the NHS doesn't seem to care very much. One of the reasons for this lack of understanding is that people going through infertility and IVF are generally very secretive about it. I know, because for years I suffered in silence. In public, I was a successful career woman, and in private, I was desperately trying to become a mother. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the reasons for this secrecy and the cost of it, particularly to women. I think it's to do with a complex combination of not wanting to criticise what feminism has given us and compromise our hard-fought positions in the workplace by disclosing what we really want is to become mothers, or ideally, a career and motherhood. It's also an attempt to avoid the risk of judgement that somehow we are not um, natural women because we can't conceive. And of course, there is the continual hope that next month the nightmare will be over and we'll finally be able to join the mummy club too. 
And when you come through it, if you've got the baby you wanted, and you just want to put the horrific experience behind you and pretend it never happened, and if you haven't got the baby, all you want to do is run away. The anger, which is in, just, which is, is in fact just a byproduct of immense sadness, can be utterly debilitating. One of the problems we're dealing with here is that IVF works, and when it does, the cost is insignificant. It's given millions of people the families and lives they've dreamed of. But when it doesn't work, but it doesn't work every time for everyone, and the true cost of that, we need to understand better. I went through 11 rounds of IVF, 11 unsuccessful rounds. And my IVF years were probably the most emotionally brutal experience that I've ever been through. It has defined my life. And now writing and campaigning about fertility is my life. Four years ago, my first book, The Pursuit of Motherhood, was published. And this May, my new book comes out, 21 Miles, Swimming in Search of the Meaning of Motherhood. The swimming reference, I'll have to explain at another time because I've only got eight minutes. Um, but my book's available on Amazon for pre-order right now. Alongside my writing, I've also founded Fertility Fest, which is the world's first arts festival dedicated to fertility, infertility, modern families, and the science of making babies. Our core aim is to improve understanding of the emotional experience of fertility treatment in order to improve patient care and outcomes, whatever the end of your story is. The second edition of the festival will be at the Bush Theatre in London from the 8th to the 13th of May. There's some cards outside you can take on your way out. It involves 150 artists and fertility experts in a week-long program of discussion and debate about what it means to make and sometimes not make babies in the modern world. And I would love you to come. Alongside this, I am also leading, in collaboration with Jackie, a groundbreaking fertility arts education project called Modern Families, aimed at persuading the government that young people need better fertility education. They need to learn more than how not to get pregnant, to properly understand the fertility life cycle, how modern families are being made today in a myriad of ways, and what reproductive science can do and what it can't do. They need to understand the cost of IVF because it looks likely they won't be getting it on the NHS. And if people continue to leave it later to conceive, there is a major equalities issue heading our way because we've got to remember that nature is not a feminist. Life expectancy may have increased, but the average age of menopause has not changed. So I am on a mission to ensure that the next generation gets the best chance to make the future they want, with or without children, with or without reproductive science. I don't want them to have to go through what I went through. Because 99% of teenage girls, when asked, will say that what they want in the future is their own family. And yet, the number of women entering their 40s childless has doubled in a generation and is now running at 20% and increasing. That disconnect between what women want and what they are getting worries me deeply. Because whatever IVF costs... It's got to be worth avoiding the pain of never. And what's the pain of never? I want to just finish by reading a very short reading 
from my new book. It's hard to explain the pain of losing something you never had, something that was never more than an expectation, a dream, or at most a cluster of cells. It's not like I'm dying or on the verge of a humanitarian disaster. People don't need to ha start having sex to save the human race because I can't have children. I know it's a hole in my life that society finds difficult to understand. I call it the pain of never. And these are its symptoms. If you've got them, you'll know. Never feeling like a real woman because you can't do what every other woman seemingly finds so easy to do. Never being able to feel happy for someone when they announce they're pregnant without feeling sad for yourself at the same time. Never being able to admit that you've been in the loo crying about it because you don't want people to pity you. Never being invited to a baby shower, christening or children's party without it hurting. Never not being invited to a baby shower, christening or children's party because people are trying to spare your feelings without that hurting even more. Never being able to make a pregnancy announcement to your family and friends and have them throw their arms around you in warm congratulations. Never being able to legitimately eat for two or buy a cool maternity dress or go into a bookstore and buy what to expect when you're expecting. Although I did do once and then I miscarried and felt like a fraud. Never feeling the first kick of life inside you. Never being able to say, I think my waters have broken or bring me gas and air. Is that what people really say? Never knowing that. Never having a baby placed on your chest and saying, hello, for the first time. Never being able to breastfeed and use your body for what it was built for. Never being able to write an out of office and say, I'm away on maternity leave. Never being able to see your child's first steps or first words or first days at, day at school or first anything. Never being able to share these things with your friends and growing distant because of it. Never seeing someone else's photos of their children on Facebook without wishing you had photos to post to. Never hearing anyone call you mum. That is the pain of never. Thanks to Jessica for sharing that particularly, but thanks to all our speakers. Um, we're going to open the floor for questions. There are two raving mics, I think. 